Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. When one looks at the world from the headquarters of the European Union in Brussels, one sees both problems and prospects in new alignments. To the west, Britain has broken away from the continent, leaving the EU with 27 member states and doubts about the dream of a cohesive European project. The United States under President Joe Biden is reaffirming the transatlantic alliance, which seemingly frayed during the term of his predecessor. To the east, Russia and China are a constant security challenge, but China is even more imposing. To the south, northern Africa and the Middle East never sleep, with concerns from Libya to Syria and farther east to Iran and maritime shipping in the Persian Gulf. Are European countries up for the task of dealing with challenges and opportunities presented to the continent? To analyze this topic, we're joined from Madrid, Spain, with Mr. Rafael Bardagi, who is the former Spanish National Security Advisor and currently the CEO of Worldwide Strategy. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. Also joining us from the United Kingdom, London, is Colonel Richard Kemp, with a former British infantry commander and head of the counterterrorism of in, or international counterterrorism at the intelligence team at the British Cabinet Office. Thank you for joining us as well, sir. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And with me in the studio is our TV7 analyst, Mr. Amir Owen, as well as the host of Watchmen Talk. Amir, give us a broader understanding. What is the key challenge today presented to uh, Europe uh, as a continent, considering the fact that the Europeans are as divided as any other continent around the world, uh, and in some uh, aspects even more so? Well, Europeans do not necessarily uh, have a common view of uh, all problems, but they would probably all agree that the most uh, challenging uh, problem is their own identity crisis. What is Europe? Uh, what happened to the uh, dream uh, by uh, Monet and Schumann and others of the United States of Europe, or at least some sort of uh, federated alliance uh, whereby each nation would give up uh, some of its sovereignty in order to have a united bloc to tackle um, problems. So uh, they have uh, um, undertook, uh, they are still recovering from, two big shocks, and that is the Trump policy vis-a-vis -vis, um, the alliance and the Brexit. And now, uh, without Britain, with uh, Germany and France leading uh, the EU, but uh, not necessarily always uh, in the same direction, and with other um, medium-sized, almost major-sized nations such as Spain and Italy, and they have the Western, the Balkans, they have Russia to contend with. And um, as we uh, have seen in recent weeks, they have the Middle East, they have Iran, because in Vienna they are represented by two EU countries plus Britain, which used to be three of the EU. And in the Middle East, the EU is one fourth of the so-called quartet the other parts being the United Nations, uh, Russia, and uh, the United States. And if there is a regenerated peace process between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, 
not Hamas, but Mahmoud Abbas, the EU might have a role there, both vis-a-vis the Palestinian Authority and vis-a-vis Hamas, because Hamas, uh, up to now, has not fulfilled the conditions set by the quartet, um, mainly to recognize Israel's existence, to recognize the Oslo process which created the Palestinian Authority. It's a very strange situation in which um, Hamas would not recognize the authority in which it wants to participate in elections and actually take over. So there's a whole bag of questions for the EU to uh, go into. Indeed. I'd like to take the, the next opportunity, Mr. Baradaji, when we're talking about uh, uh, your perspective on uh, Europe's key challenge. Uh, what, what would you point your finger on and why would that be? Well, I think we, we need to differentiate between internal issues and external challenges. On the internal front, I think we need to cope urgently with the division that has emerged uh, during the COVID and the coronavirus crisis. It's not only that the, the Brexit of the Trump presidency introduced kind of shocks that has been said already, but also the COVID responses has been everyone for himself. Uh, Germany taking decisions uh, on the vaccines uh, that are approved or not, uh, Brussels uh, contracting uh, stupidly with uh, uh, some uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, other countries taking their own uh, measures, closing the borders. You know, it has been a kind of a implosion of the European Union, not in dream, but in institutions and policy. That's something that has to be fixed. If they want to continue with the ever closer union, as it was said in the beginning. Uh, and on the external front, I think, uh, well, the world is not waiting for Europe to, to clarify its identity. Uh, China is an emerging power which is challenging everyone in the world. Uh, uh, Russia is taking a different line in many instances. So we need to cope with the emerging powers in the world. And also with the fact that America, without Trump and with Biden, is not behaving very differently. Uh, Biden decided unilaterally to withdraw from Afghanistan, and we had to follow soon after that. Uh, so America is in retreat, uh, and Russia is on their own, and China is emerging. And that's something we need to cope with if we want to preserve our ability to, to, to remain as a continent of freedom, liberty, and prosperity in the future. Indeed. Colonel Kemp, uh, the European Union has been quite hollow uh, when it comes to its capacity to assert its will as an institution on member states. Uh, one of the examples, of course, being the, the COVID crisis and uh, accumulating the, the necessary inoculations in order to combat the spread of the disease. But when we're speaking specifically about uh, various crises, except for the British uh, decision to disengaged, if you will, from uh, uh, its membership in the European Union, uh, where the, uh, the, the EU institution, Brussels in particular, has been very hostile towards the United Kingdom, as opposed to other activities around the world where it's being a lot more mellow and uh, on the security level, as well as on the economic level, even though it has uh, strong economic powers, it's not very... Um, strong when it comes to action uh, on that front. Uh, how do you see the UK c- 
contending with the fact that it is part of the European continent uh, uh, and has been also culturally so for uh, centuries and millennia. But at the same time, now it seems that uh, all of the the, uh, pitchforks are sharpened uh, in its direction. I think um, I I agree, first of all, with Raphael's overall analysis. And in terms of the UK and Brexit and Europe, um, the, the greatest fear of the EU from Brexit, which is why we've seen hostility from them before and after uh, we left the EU, uh, is is that Britain would be able to leave the EU and prosper and actually perhaps do even better than they had done under the EU. Uh, And of course, you know, the, the most graphic illustration of that, which has terrified the EU, is the the different treatments of COVID. And you know, Britain has been, I, I believe, spectacularly successful in its vaccination program, second only probably to Israel, um, whereas the EU have been woeful in theirs. And that many people over here who felt, you know, who felt sorrow at leaving the EU, and many did and still do, felt that that illustration of, of the difference between what Britain operating alone as a small country could do compared to the massive organisation of the EU, I think was pretty telling. Um and and, and uh, I think that that's uh, something that the EU is going to have to come to terms with at some point. But also in terms of things like borders between you know, the, the EU's obsession with open borders or no borders, I think has been, you know, has been really called into question by COVID, where there's obviously a need to control the movement of people. And also, of course, by mass immigration that's been occurring in Europe since then. So I think the, the EU have got many problems to sort out. Britain's membership of the EU, I think, did bring certain advantages for the EU. We we are probably the most powerful military uh, country within the EU, and and not just in terms of our military capability, but also in terms of our willingness to actually use that military capability when needed, which is a great rarity within the EU. And also, secondly, intelligence, that Britain has a a very, very capable intelligence service, I think, which is the envy of many EU countries. So we brought that. And in addition to that, I think we we did, to an extent, bring a bit more resolve into some of the EU's foreign policy considerations. I don't say we always got it right and we were necessarily strong enough, but I think we were pretty strong. And one example of that is in relation to Israel, where I think Britain was a, a strong, albeit not strong enough, but at least a strong influencer on EU's policy towards Israel, um, which will be, I think, damaged by Britain's withdrawal from the EU. There won't be that check any longer. So that's just that's just a couple of examples. But in terms of the EU's um, ability to flex power and to use power and to actually confront either militarily or, or otherwise the, the, the various crises around the world, I think we've seen largely as a result of the identity um, crisis that, that Amir mentioned that Israel is fa- that the UK is facing that you EU is facing. Um, that there's a there's a great unwillingness to to take strong action. The, the EU have kind of um, and and not just the EU but European countries have have worked. They they that you know after the fall of the of Soviet Union after the end of the Cold War. I think they even more after that, they felt that everything could be resolved by nice talking and by compromise, by appeasement. And 
they will find as as these various threats unfold. They won't be able to do that. And, and an example of um, of this, I think, you know, a lot of the identity crises within EU countries and including in Britain as well um, have been stirred up. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's an interesting study to be done to see where Russian and Chinese influence lie in some of these uh, agitating movements in within the EU, because they do nothing but weaken EU countries. Um, and, and they're obviously in the interest of China and Russia. So I think that's you know, that's a, a really serious fundamental problem the EU has to, but I don't believe will face. Indeed. Uh, Mr. Owen, I'd like to touch on something more specific. In 2014, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was <coughs> later uh, assassinated by uh, the United States, uh, declared the Islamic Caliphate in Syria and Iraq. Uh, with that uh, being said, uh, time progressed, uh, an international coalition led by the United States was formed, and uh, the, the Islamic State was defeated, at least territorially, but not uh, ideologically. Come the, the uh, moment where the, the various fighters, including many of them who were regional dissidents but uh, immigrated to Europe and then decided to join the Islamic State and travel to Syria or Iraq, uh, many of them returned into Europe, uh, the ver various uh, efforts to try and reintegrate them and uh, uh, deal with their radical ideology. But uh, it seems that there are more than 3,500 at the time uh, of their return, 3,500 jihadists who uh, have uh, not really relent uh, from their past uh, activities and are uh, relatively, if not freely, uh, roaming throughout uh, the European continent and the United Kingdom. Uh, of course, we saw the devastating terror attacks in multiple European countries and cities, including Austria, uh, France, the United Kingdom, uh, Belgium, and more. Uh, what do you think the Europeans are able to do in order to contend with that challenge? Well, you point uh, to one of the most challenging um, operational problems that uh, governments and security services uh, have today, because uh, keeping uh, prisoners incarcerated is no solution either. They get even more radicalized in jail. Uh, they form cells uh, to be uh, later uh, designated uh, by their uh, headquarters, dispatched. And when they are out, they're also a menace. So uh, there's no um, uh, easy uh, solution. But your larger question speaks to the triple, not double, triple identity of each European country. Um, they are sovereign nations. Let's take Germany. It's a sovereign nation. In, the, uh, in Germany's case, even a federal one, it's even more complicated because, uh, for instance, the Israeli security services have to deal not only with Berlin, but also with, with each uh, lander. But leaving that aside, you have Germany with bilateral relations with Israel. Uh, this is the instance we're taking. You have Germany as a member state of the European Union, and you have Germany as a member state of NATO. Most of the countries, not all, of course, are members of both NATO and the EU. So what levers do you push? Are you trying 
to shape European policy through Jerusalem's relations with Berlin or the other way around? Can you get some common policy? Now, in Brussels, for instance, Israel has two embassies. One is for the relationship with the host country, Belgium. The other one has an ambassador accredited to both the EU and NATO. And he doesn't have an identical task when he goes lobbying or pleading or presenting Israel's case. It's very confusing for decision makers and diplomats in Israel and truly in many other countries too. Uh, Mr. Bardaji, I'd like to hear your take on this, also as the advisor to the special operations uh, uh, at NATO uh, and also uh, somebody who served as the national security advisor of Spain proper. How do you see this challenge and the fact that each country is party to so many various institutions? I think the, the real issue here is that the European Union was born as a pacifist entity or institution. It was born in order to avoid another world war, not through deterrence, not through power, but through interlocking interests in the economic field. And since then, the European Union has preserved the institution until very recently outside of any defense or any security commitment. They didn't have meetings of uh, uh, defense minister until very uh, 10 years ago. They didn't plan to have uh, uh, in, in industrial defense policy until 15 years ago. So it was completely out, out, out of the realm of power and force. Um, because of that, I think there are still in people in the institutions, officials, high-level officials, that they don't see and they don't understand in strategic terms the challenges the European Union is facing. And that's much more acute and grave than all the the different voices that you can hear from different countries and different regions and different uh, personalities. Uh, having said that, uh, I think Kissinger was the one who said that uh, if the Americans press a button, uh, there's a missile fire off. And if the Europeans press a button, there's a communique getting out of the printer. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we, we have improved our situation in the last 15 years, but still we are far away from, uh, from creating a, a, a military combined power that may resemble what we had in NATO or what other nations have. No? So, but that's just a problem of the philosophy more than the, 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 the question of different perception of voices. Though, as you can imagine, the strategic vision of Spain in the South, limiting with a civilization through the Strait of Gibraltar, uh, compared to the Denmark, has to be very different, or to the uh, northern countries, which are Finland or others, which are close to the, the, the former Soviet Union, today Russia. So it's, it's complex, but if we did a NATO uh, successfully, we are not able to do to replicate that in the European Union, not because of uh, different voices, but because the mentality and the philosophy that European Union has ambitioned since the very beginning. Indeed. Colonel Kemp, I'd like to hear your take on this. And if you may also uh, elaborate, uh, the United Kingdom has, for the first time in many years, uh, sent out uh, on a global tour uh, a uh, warship group, uh, an aircraft carrier in, uh, with all of its components, a task force, if you will. Uh, of course, the Americans have also contributed uh, one vessel to this mission, and the, uh, the Netherlands has contributed a vessel of its own uh, to allow for various uh, 
um, maneuvers to occur in the Mediterranean, in the Persian Gulf, and, and in the South China Sea. What can you tell us about that? Uh, is this, again, one of those uh, situations that were truly only presented once the United Kingdom broke off from the European Union? Uh, I, I think in relation to that, I, I, I don't believe that this was caused or was possible only as a result of that breakaway. I think Britain could easily have done uh, that operation if part of the EU. And, and as you mentioned, the Netherlands have a warship with the carrier strike group going into the South China Sea and other parts, other places around the world. Um, and, and also we have, for example, in, in Mali at the moment, we have British forces operating alongside or nearby French forces in Mali as well. So, you know, I don't think any of our military actions really have been related to either the EU or Brexit. And in fact, as Raphael rightly pointed out, the the, the, the big problem is with the EU as far as, um, as as far as military power and the ability to have it. And let's not forget that military power is just as much or even more about deterrence than it is about actually fighting a war. If you if you don't have the military capability and the political will to use it, then you are basically provoking your enemy to do something against you, whether it's military or diplomatically. Um, so I think I think that, and, and, and the, the rea reality, of course, is that that underlying philosophy that Rafael mentioned is also very, very evident within European countries' contributions to NATO. They, they simply, you know, I, I believe personally that shouldn't be a EU military force because I think that would undermine NATO um, because it would it would take resources away from NATO and it would compete with NATO which we don't need I don't believe at the moment and of course Britain remains a, a firm member of NATO as well as the other EU countries um, so I think I think that uh, you know the the, um, the, 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 the the issue is very much one of um, of, of mentality rather than uh, necessarily uh, resources or ability, and I think the, you know, the, the the issue that was mentioned earlier about President President Trump and his relationship with the EU and NATO that was partly born out of a refusal by EU countries to pull their weight in NATO. They're very happy to cry for NATO when they fear problems, for example, over Ukraine or elsewhere in Eastern Europe. Um, but they don't want themselves to be part of that. They don't want themselves to to actually, they don't see themselves doing the heavy lifting. And that irritated President Trump as well as uh, previous presidents. And I'm sure it's equally irritating to President Biden. As the former British commander of British forces in Afghanistan, now with uh, the Biden administration's decision to pull its forces out, do you see the Europeans at large uh, looking to disengage from the Middle East and pivoting eastward toward the so uh, South China Sea as the United States intends to do? Uh, and if you would uh, also follow uh, after Colonel Kemp, uh, Mr. Um, uh, Baldaji, uh, it would uh, be appreciated. The unconditional withdrawal from Afghanistan, I've no doubt, was welcomed by those European countries who are involved in that mission at the moment. Um, maybe not including Britain. And in fact, this was the first, uh, the first military decision the U.S. has taken that I can remember in my lifetime, where Britain, the British Chief of Staff, expressed reservations about it because, of course, he's deeply concerned that all of the resources, lives, uh, forces invested in Afghanistan over so many years 
will, will have been not wasted, but but you know that they won't really have achieved their goal, and the likelihood is that the Taliban will uh, again take power in Afghanistan. But it isn't just Afghanistan either. I think the message that President Biden sends out by a unconditional withdrawal from Afghanistan, particularly if it does result in a civil war, which is likely, I think that message is evident. Um, uh, is sorry, is significant around the world. It undermines U.S. strength and U.S. capability. And we've just we've seen, for example, in relation to Taiwan, since President Biden took uh, power in the White House, the, the Chinese obviously increased their the intensity of their aerial operations over the Taiwan airspace, and that was very clearly done uh, as a result of. You know, as a way of sort of testing maybe the resolve of President Biden. Equally, when President Biden uh, planned a, a, a carrier, uh, sorry, a, a naval force to, to transit the Black Sea, Russia told him not to because of what was going on with Ukraine and, um, uh, and the Crimea at the time when they were building up forces. And President Biden cancelled that transit, which again, it just sends the wrong signs. It shows weakness. And we've seen Perhaps even more worryingly, we've seen the current weakness of the uh, U.S. regime or the U.S. administration in in not persisting with President Trump's maximum pressure on Iran, but in essentially trying to appease Iran uh, by getting back to a, a very, very flawed JCPOA. So I think these messages are extremely important and, of course, um, noted very closely by America's enemies around the world in terms of a, a EU pivot towards, let's say, towards China and that part of the world. I don't really see that. I, I think, you know, the EU is um, obviously in diplomatic terms, we may well see some kind of uh, re-emphasis. Mr. Bartoji, you don't have very much time left. So if you uh, will, yeah. shortly. Well, I entirely agree with uh, what Colonel Kemp said about pivoting to nowhere. Uh, you have to bear in mind that the European Union is less than it sums, the sum of its parts, unfortunately. Uh, it's a very weak institution in strategic terms, to say the least. So we are pivoting towards uh, issues which have nothing to do with defense, security, and uh, international policy as such. We are pivoting to uh, climate change, uh, countermeasures and policy, uh, identity uh, and gender diversity and uh, a multiculturalism. That's the pivoting. We are pivoting inwards, not outwards, not strategically. That's, that's a, some a ter terrible mistake that we are going to pay. The other thing is that different countries like France or other, uh, maybe Germany, may, may act unilaterally or in alliance built around several, several issues. But as such, the European Union is just closing their, 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 their heads and putting on the sand uh, blind to what is happening in the world, blind to what is happening to our territory. Last week in Spain, we suffered thousands of people crossing uh, from Morocco to our cities illegally and uh, because we were unable to defend our borders. And the European Union just looked the other direction. They said nothing. Uh, this is unfortunately all the time that we have for today, but this is a topic uh, that uh, we will uh, return and discuss frequently, I believe, uh, highlighting the various challenges at hand. I'd like to thank you and Colonel Kemp as well for being part of today's panel. And I'd like to thank Mr. Owen as well. And we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. 
For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.